December 24th, 2021. At the bottom of the page, really up to the next Mishnah. But as I mentioned yesterday, we need to read and discuss briefly that very long Rashi on the left-hand side of the page because he's commenting on a few words at the end of the Gemara. At the parentheses, immediately before the Mishnah, there are several words. It says, Ki ha <coughs> which are not fully understood unless you have the commentary of Rashi over here. Just very briefly what the context in the Gemara was, why it cited, why it mentioned those words. It was the following, it cited a Biraita, and the Biraita said that there was a circumstance where a person was up to uh, execution, and he makes this bold exclamation, he makes this bold declaration, he says, I'm completely innocent, and he has a way of saying it, if I'm guilty, my death should have no atonement for me, if I'm innocent, then my death should have a full atonement. But you should know, I have no blame on Betin, I have no blame on Yisrael. Those Edim, however, those Edim, those witnesses, they're problematic witnesses. The witnesses uh, attempt to admit in that moment, they're intimidated by a dead man, an imminent dead man's words, but the Betin, the, the scholars, the leaders of the time said we can't accept any retraction. Uh, of course he can't accept a retraction. Once a witness uh, utters words of testimony in court, the way Jewish, the way halakha court system works is, there's no retracting. People can bring evidence against you. Other witnesses can claim that it can't be factually true what you're saying, but you can't retract it. That's the halakha. We have a derasha for it uh, elsewhere. That being the case, well, what's the hidush of this story, said the Gemara? Answered the the witnesses gave a reason for why they testified as they did, which means that they're not just retracting because of fear in this moment, they're also giving the backstory. The reason we testified falsely was because of X, Y, and Z. Nonetheless, we won't accept their testimony. Parenthesis, says the Gemara, it's just like some other stories, some other circumstance, which the Gemara doesn't entirely let on to the details of. Rashi, really drawing from Talmud Yerushalmi, has a very long story. So if you look at the top left-hand side of your page, this Gemara page has no Tosafot, because Rashi has so much to say. Um, the second line over here, it says, Deba'aya Michsa. Now the word Michsa oftentimes means to cover, as, uh, as uh, Musa just demonstrated. But over here it means the moches. Moches means the tax person. In other words, the words in the Gemara, de ba'ayam michsa, could have been, and I'm certain there's a double entendre over here, could have been interpreted as de ba'aya, that need michsa to be covered up. Alternatively, uh, michsa is going to be interpreted as moches, a tax taker, a tax collector, and ba'aya may have been his name. So it's the story of ba'aya, the tax collector. Now, before I even go onward, a tax collector, once upon a time, as we touched upon in a different Gemara, was oftentimes, most of the time, looked at, if it was a Jewish tax collector, uh, the vilified individual. Nobody wanted anything to do with them. They were, looking, they were looked at as a collaborator with the government. They were always causing sorrows for the people. They never had an easy time. Oftentimes, they were guilty. They, were, they had their fingers, their hands on the purses of the people. They were able to take advantage of them. The Gemara contrasts those who are diligent and good tax collectors, and then the standard tax collector. So that's what you have to have in mind already going in. We're not going to be talking about someone that's all too liked and probably not such a good guy. Says Rashi, third line from the top. That's a long Rashi. Ma'aseh b'moches ehad Yisrael rasha. 
Ehad Shemet. And so the story was, it was a Moches Ehad Israel. It was an individual's tax collector. He was a Rasha. He died. Ubo Bayom Met Adam Gadol Ba'ir. And on that same day, a, uh, a verified good guy, a big guy in the nation, dies as well. So you have the vilified, the lowly tax collector, and you have the, I don't know, let's call it the uh, chief philanthropist of the community, or alternatively, the chief rabbi of the community. Whatever it is, the two of them die on the same day. Ubao kol b'neha'ir v'nitaseku b'mitato. And uh, all the people of the city come to deal with the, uh, the chief rabbi, let's call him, his, his burial. Ukrove otome moches, however, the relatives of the moches, of the tax collector, they brought at, right immediately thereafter, and I imagine it coming out of the funeral home, they take his bed, which has him dead on it as well, right after. So they're kind of drawing from the crowd, so the throngs of people who are surrounding the first bed of the Gadol, they're bringing the Rasha afterwards. And in this context, Oyevim, undefined Oyevim, but something goes wrong, other individuals come and jump in onto the scene, and everybody scatters. So you were kind of having, having this beautiful procession with the Gadol Ha'ir in the front, the Rasha Ha'ir kind of tagging along behind, both on their death, both in their coffins, and then there's a dispersal because these Oyevim, these enemies uh, uh, arrive. Everyone places down the dead bodies and they run away, they're fleeing for their life. There's one individual student who won't flee. Uh, he knows he has to honor the dead, and it's his rabbi, it's his leader, it's his mentor. He stays there even after, even as the uh, Oyevim are pursuing or emerge on the scene. Afterwards, the uh, Gidole Ha'ir, the head uh, individuals of the city, come back to finish the uh, procession of the death a burial of this individual, this important person, but they mixed up the two uh, dead people. There were two coffins strewn out on the street. They didn't know which was which, and as a result, they take the Rasha's coffin and they begin to uh, take that forward. But the student who stayed behind afterwards and knows how to discern, he knows which bed is which, he knows which one is the dead, the dead Rasha uh, and which one's the dead Gadol, he's screaming, you're taking that of the Rasha, but nobody's listening. And as a result, the relatives of the Rasha, they end up burying the Hacham and everyone else buries the Rasha. He could not understand this student. Well, what was it that my rabbi, my mentor, did wrong that he had this sort of burial? And what sort of right deed, good deed, did the moches, did the uh, tax collector do that he was able to be buried with such honor? His, his rabbi, his mentor, comes to him in his dream. He says, don't be so sorrowful, don't be uh, uh, feeling so bad about what happened. He says, you should see our afterlife. I have a luxurious, uh, sanctified afterlife. I'm in Gan Eden. He, on the other hand, is in Gehenom, so don't feel all that bad. Aval, but you should know, the reason that 
each of us were buried the way that we were, okay, listen, our aftermath was okay. It kind of aligned with what you'd expect. The reason that happened is because of something that each of us did in our lifetimes, which gave us a certain and specific merit. He says, for me, one time I heard a people or an individual uh, speaking badly about uh, one of the scholars, one of the rabbis, and I didn't uh, stop him. That, I didn't protest. As a result, this was my punishment. It was my punishment immediately prior to burial, but everything was clean, cleansed for me there on in. He, that individual, he did one good thing in his life, and as a result, he merited that sort of burial. What was the one good thing he did in his life? He once prepared for the minister of the non-Jews, a banquet, a large meal, and the Tsar, the, the minister, never showed up. He took the proceeds, he took the food from that meal and he gave it to poor people of Am Yisrael. So he did one good thing, I did one bad thing. Each of us were punished in that burial in which we were flipped, but the aftermath was the same, or it was, was appropriate, don't feel bad. Amaro <laughs> told... Indeed. All right, so watch out. Be careful. <laughs> myself included. We need to all be careful about it. And, and the merit, let's talk positively, and the merit of giving to poor people. Asked this student to his rabbi in a dream, he says to him, so how long is it going to take for this person uh, to be suffering in Gehinom? He says, until Shimon ben Shatah passes away and Shimon ben Shatah will take his place, which is a startling statement. Until Shimon ben Shatah enters into Gehinom, Shimon ben Shatach is a very important individual. He's one of, I mean, he, he's mentioned in the Mishnayot. He's mentioned in the Gemara. He's going to take the place of that moches who's quote-unquote rotting in Gehenom? How could that be? Amar lo, lama? Why so? Amar lo, nashim mechashfaniyot yisraeliyot sheyesh be'ashkelon ve'eno ose bahendim. He says, you should know, Shimon ben Shatach knows about, or could know about, women who are sorcerers in Ashkelon, and he hasn't done anything to them. He hasn't judged them. He hasn't put them to death. And that's his liability. It's for that reason he's going to be punished in the afterlife. The next day, the student goes, and he tells Shimon ben Shatach exactly what he saw, exactly what he knows. And he says, Shimon ben Shatach, with all due respect, maybe you want to handle those women, those sorcerer women, in Ashkelon. Me'asa, what did Shimon ben Shatach do? He says, I have to handle this. I understand the situation. Kines shemonim bachorim ba'alei koma v'haya oto hayom yom geshamim v'natan kad gedola biyad kol echad v'echad v'kipel talit betocham he takes, he uh, amasses, he gathers 80 tall students, maybe tall and strong, maybe broad, means strong and tall, and he gives them jugs, and he puts in the jugs talit, meaning a cloak, and it's a raining day. So you have 80 students holding these jugs, and the whole, imagine it like a container. Inside that container, there's a cloak, there's clothing. Shehen 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 Shemonim, Ubsha'ashe Tikansu, Yagbiha Ish, 
אחת מהן מן הארץ, ושוב הן מכשפות שולטות בכם. ואם לאו, לא נוכל להם. Here's the plan. We're going to go into these נשים מכשפות, ישראליות, and we're going to make certain, we're going to need a situation in which we're able to pick them off the ground. For some reason, the Midrash says, if you pick the מכשף, the sorcerer, off the ground, they lose their grounding, they lose the ability to... do their thing, and as a result, that's the way we'll take them down. We won't be able to take them down another way. There are 80 of them, 80 of us, but we need to get them off the ground. Okay, halach lo Shimon ben Shatach letraklin shelahem. Shimon ben Shatach and these 80 others go to their traklin, their, their mansion, the place where they're living. Veheniach bachurim ibachutz. He leaves these young men, these strong young men, outside in the outer chamber. Amru lo miata, the mechashvaniot, the mechashefot, the women say to him, who are you? Amar lahem. I'm also a sorcerer. As a matter of fact, I want to see your sorcery. I want to see your, your ability and I want to compare it to my ability. Oh, you're a sorcerer. Can you prove it to us? What sort of sorcery do you have? What do you have up your sleeve? He says, I have the most amazing trick I can pull on you. I can make, emerge from that room right there, people who came with me, you see me, I'm dripping wet. My clothing are soaked in water because it's pouring outside. I'm going to bring in 80 young men and all of them, even though it's pouring outside, are going to be wearing dry clothing. Are you ready for that? Dry clothing means they somehow walked in between the, the drops of rain. This is my sorcery. Amrulo hanira. Is, is, is it possible? Let's see it. Yazalahut veramazlahem hotsiu hatalitot mina kadim vinet atefubayem viniknesu. He signs, to, he signals to them, all right, guys, it's time. Take the talitot, take the cloaks out of the uh, jugs, out of the containers, put them on, and come on in. Veahaz kolehad et ahat mehem. As they enter, as the machashefot, as the sorcerer women, these 80 women are looking and stunned by the scene and don't know what to do, are uh, to a certain extent uh, disarmed in the moment, each one of those young men grab one of the machashefot and of course lift them off the ground. That was the imperative uh, operation. That's what you needed to do, get them off the ground. As a result, they disarmed them, they took away their ability. And as a result, they took out these machashefot Shimon ben Shatach sets the matter right and they're all hanged. However, the relatives of these 80 sorcerers are very unhappy. They're uh, zealous. They want to uh, take uh, revenge against Shimon ben Shatach. You killed our relatives. Look at what happened. And as a result, what they do is they conspire two of the relatives of these mechashefot come to Bedin and they uh, testify about the son of Shimon ben Shatach that he's Hayav Mita Venigmardino and they check out with their conspiracy, with their lie and as a result he's Hayav Mita Ukshaya Yotzeli Sakil as he's being taken out to get Skila Amar Im Yesh Biavon Ze Lotemitati Kapara Lotli Vimeno Ken Tehemitati Kapara Al Kola Vonotai Ve Kolar Talui Besavar Edim He has those identical words to the story we saw in our Gemara He says, I'm absolutely innocent, and I'll prove it to you. If I'm innocent, so then I should get atonement for all my other sins. If I'm guilty, I should have no atonement at all. And you should know the noose 
is around the neck of those witnesses because it's their fault, this circumstance. Identical to our story in the Gemara. What's Shimon ben Shatach's response? How's he going to save the day? The witnesses immediately hear and they retract their statement. They admit we were lying. The reason we were lying is because we were so angry at his father, but it was all a lie. Don't do this to us. You're about to kill that him. And as a result, we're nervous about our future. They made clear that the reason was because of the kinah, the sinah, which was, which was at that time very much manifested because of the, the women who were their relatives. And nonetheless, Nonetheless, he was never taken off of death row. So the Gemara cites this story in just a few words. It's a long-winded story which amounts to, after all the details which are relevant for other conversations, especially historical conversations with regards to Shimon ben Shatach and otherwise, but ultimately speaking, it's the same punchline as our Gemara, except that it's not just a story about an anonymous individual, it's the son of Shimon ben Shatach, to the extent that he was willing, that the Chachamim were willing to live by these words and state clearly the halakha is, although the witnesses, we are now certain because of their word that they were lying, but within the system, we can't nullify them, we can't knock them out, we're going to go through with the judgment as planned and sentence that individual to death. Alright, well that's the final words in the Gemara, filled in by the story that Rashi cites, which is really being drawn from Talmud Yerushalmi. Onward, Mishnah, says the Mishnah at the bottom of the page, Hayara Hok Mi Beta Sekila Arba Amot. When the individual, woman or man, well, we'll detail the difference between the two in just a moment, were four amot, that's roughly six feet away from the place where they're going to be stoned, where we're going to throw stones in order to execute them, mafshitin oto et begadav, we would take off their clothing. The reason to take off their clothing is so that their death is quicker. Uh, if they don't have any clothing separating between themselves and the stones that are being thrown at them, it's going to be a quicker, swifter, less painful death. Says the Mishnah onward, says there was a difference between men and women. The male would be covered in the front, his private part in the front would be covered. The woman, whose private part, as the Mishnah will make clear, as we all know, is visible both from front and back. We would cover her both at the front and at the back, so she'd be wearing some sort of underwear or loincloth in order to protect her over there. The Hachamim disagree with Rabbi as to how we would clothe them. It says the man would be absolutely naked, it appears, but the woman would not be uh, naked at the time of death. And the Gemara will deal with each of these two opinions, their rationale, and the reason they disagree with the other. Right now, Tanura Banan, at the top of that Memhe Amudalaf, a Beraita. Says the Biraita, exactly what we expected, kind of repeating the words of the Mishnah, but clarifying them a bit. The difference between male and female is how much clothing we're going to put in the front and the back, or just in the front. And the reason is, as the Bihuda says here in the Biraita, that a woman, kulah erva, both front and back, is considered erva, is considered exposed private part. What does it mean in the Mishnah, in the Beraita, when he uses that word perek echad? Rashi has one of two explanations to it. Either the word perek means a little bit, or perek means a small cloth. 
Uh, either way you slice it, says Rashi, it's uh, a wording which means a small portion. So, okay, the, the Beraita describes exactly what we thought was coming from the Mishnah. Continues the Beraita. There's a difference altogether between the male and the female. The male is Arum. The woman is not Arum. What's the reasoning? What's the rationale of the Hachamim? Why don't you cover up the man? Why is it that you do cover the woman? Amar Kera, the Pasuk says, Veragemu Oto. The Pasuk says, and they will, they will stone him. This is a reference to someone who's Oved Avodazara. My Oto, why does the Pasuk say we, they will stone him? Ilema Oto Velo Ota, perhaps it means the only people who are stoned in Bnei Israel who get that stoning as a death is men, but not women. Doesn't the Pasuk alter, excuse me, the first Pasuk was by the Mekalel. This Pasuk now is by Oved Avodazara. The Pasuk alternatively says that you stone, you kill by stoning either the male or the female if they transgress. So what did the Pasuk mean earlier in Parashat Emor when it said Viragimu Oto Elamai Oto Oto Belo Kesuto Ha Ota Biksuta the Derasha says say Hachamim is that he would not be wearing his clothing. Who gets stoned? What gets stoned? Only him. What doesn't get stoned? His clothing. But the pasuk is only referring to the male, oto. It's not referring to the female, ota. And as a result, say the hachamim, there's a difference. We distinguish between the male and the female. The male, uh, take off his clothing, oto. The female, it could be ota as well. We would stone her even, um, e- even with her clothing on. Rabbi Uda Omer, oto belo kesuto. Disagrees. He says, wait a second. As Rashi cites from the Gemara Masech Bava Kaman, the halacha is that when it comes to punishments, we don't ever distinguish between male and female. As a result, if the Torah says that by the male, by oto, it's without clothing, if that's what's uh, implied by using the word oto in an extra fashion, you didn't need the word oto, say, viragemuhu, it says oto, the derasha is oto belo kesuto, it means that the woman as well is without her clothing on, and says, there's no difference between male and female. When all the dust settles, there's a dispute, disagreement between Biudan and Hachamim. Hachamim, the only reason, the only reason they're declothing the man, they are saying that the man should not be wearing his clothing, is because of a pasuk. Pasuk says oto. Otherwise, they'd very much be interested in the person having clothing on. Bihuda disagrees. Bihuda says, even though the Torah is never explicit in his eyes about whether it must be without clothing or not, our understanding is that it equates male and female. Says the Gemara as a result, this all seems to imply, according to the Hakamim, in their reading of the Dirashah of the Pesukim, they render a woman being clothed. They didn't need it to be that way. Ultimately speaking, this is the way Rashi explains, ultimately speaking, they know the male needs to be naked. Why do they know that? Oto. Do they know that the female must be naked? They don't. Uh, do they know that she must be clothed? They don't know that either. Either Wouldn't it make her death easier if she was naked? Absolutely. So why are the hachamim interested in her wearing clothing? It must be because the hachamim fear that people watching this death sentence with the woman exposed, it's going to cause wrongful thought for the men, or men who are watching. As a result, say the hachamim, if we don't have a reason that necessitates her wearing clothing, uh, except her being naked, we're going to make certain that she does wear clothing. Do we understand that? Again, hirhur means thoughts, means inappropriate thoughts. 
The hachamim say we want the woman to be sanua because we don't want it to cause thoughts of others. Did they need to say that? Well, the derasha is only by the male that he needs to be naked. That's right. Did, couldn't they have extended it to the woman as well? The fact that they don't, it seems clear that they're haish, that they're fearful, they suspect that people are going to think wrongfully, and as a result they say, cover the woman. On the flip side, it says both the male and the female were naked. You just covered their private parts in one way or another. His opinion seems to be that you're not choshesh v'hirhura. It's only a derasha which brought him that way. Says the Gemara, I have a contradiction. On the one hand, the way we just presented the mahluk between hachamim and biudai is the hachamim fear what people are going to think. They say if the woman is not dressed properly, people are going to think wrongfully. Rabbi Uda, less nervous about that. The is technically speaking, as the woman, the woman being naked, uh, well, we know the opposite in, with regards to their opinions elsewhere. The context of their opposite opinions is a woman who's a sota. There's an entire masechet called masechet sota. The Torah in Parashat Naso describes a woman who's suspected by her husband as having cheated on him. And there's a long process in the Mishkan or in the Mikdash later on, which would be done by the Kohen Gadot together with this woman, or by a Kohen together with this woman, which ultimately speaking would bring to either her demise or her being exonerated, being found guilty or being found innocent. Along the way, in that process, the way the Hachamim carefully read the Pasuk in the Torah, there needed to be an embarrassment of this woman. You needed to embarrass her, perhaps to bring her to admit, perhaps to bring her down to a very lowly state. One of them, as says Charlie, is uh, that's explicit in the Pasuk. You would open up her hair. In other words, if she had neatly braided hair, which was a sign or is a sign of modesty, you'd open that up, take that out. But furthermore, the hachamim have a derasha as well. They, the kohen would grab her clothing and rip it. Now, each of those, exposing her hair in such a fashion and ripping her clothing, of course, could provoke the hirhur of others. Someone who's watching it and sees her being exposed in such a fashion might be, in turn, sexually turned on and inspired. And we're going to see how their opinions translate into sota. We'd imagine that the hachamim are going to be more conservative over here and Rabbi Uda a little bit more liberal. That's what we've seen already. And yet, Ditnan, the Mishnah in Masechet Sota, tells us, Hakohen ohez bibigadea. The Kohen would forcefully hold on to the clothing of the Safek Sota, the woman who's suspected of being a Sota. Im nikre'u, nikre'u. Vim nifremu, nifremu. If they're torn, they're torn. If they're torn even more, the way Rashid distinguishes between Kiriya and Firima, Kiriya is just a small tear, Firima is an absolute tear, where it's really ren- rendered completely, entirely. Either way, you slice it, that statement is, hold on to her forcefully and allow for her clothing to rip. Until, by forcefully pulling it down, you expose her heart, and you expose her hair. We're going to imagine who's opinion is this, that you're absolutely revealing her nakedness, that you're tearing her clothing, that you're opening her hair, that's of course going to be the opinion of Rabbi Udar. Rabbi Udar is the one who told us in our Gemara that we're not hoshesh lehirura, and yet it's the opinion of the Hachamim. Rabbi Huda disagrees. Omer, im haya liba lo haya megaleo. Vim haya sa'ara lo haya sotro. Rabbi Huda disagrees. He says, if it's an uh, attractive woman, if it's a woman who by exposing this, it's going to look beautiful, or others are going to be provoked by this exposure, you would not do so. 
Well, that's the complete opposite of what we saw their opinions over here. In our Gemara, it was the Hachamim who were more conservative in terms of Siniyot. It was Rabbi Uda who was a little bit more liberal. Over here in the Mishnah, in Masechet Sota, we have the flip. We have Ibcha Shami'inanahu. What's that? In the Mishkan. So Judah asks, who are we fearful of? It'll be clear in just a moment. We're fearful of the young Kohanim, what we call Pirchei Kehuna. The Sikila is done in public, in public. Okay, ultimately, I mean, in public, how much in public? It was outside of the city. It's whoever came to watch. The Mishkan, you could have come to watch as well. There are people who are present at both, at the very least. It's not going to be uh, throngs, but there's going to be people present at both. The question really is, how could Rabbi Yehuda disagree over here in Masechet Sota? As I mentioned to you, it's Dirashot from the Pesukim. The Pasuk says, he's porea et roshel, para et roshel. Rabbi Yehuda says, no, but if she's pretty, not so fast. What are you talking about, Rabbi Yehuda? You can't go against the Torah. Point out, sometimes the Hachamim have the power, this entire sugya and Masechet along these lines, to be okir davar min which means to say, if the misvah or the sivui in the Torah is going to bring to wrongful outcomes, and the rabbis the, 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 who understood so, without taking action, but being inactive, they can, they can uproot it. What's that? To a certain extent, as much easier examples. Don't get, don't go so far. Yes, but the, the easier example is Shofar uh, Rosh Hashanah. Shofar Rosh Hashanah Shachaliot b'Shabbat. We don't say on the Shabbat. How are you doing that? The Torah never said to do, you, you don't say on Sheva Al Taaseh. It's a siyad, but it's a Akirat Avam in HaTorah b'Sheva Al Taaseh. You can apply it accordingly. Furthermore, okay. But anyway, that being the case, uh, we're stuck. This is a contradiction. It's a blatant contradiction between Hachamim and Rabbi Yehuda. Amar Abba says, Rabba, I'll first explain the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda. Amar Abba, hatam haynu ta'ama sheme teseh mi betin zaka'av yitgaru ba pirche kehuna. Hacha hamiktela. Says Rabbah, there's an easy distinction. It goes like this. Over there by the Sota, the Hachamim are nervous about her Siniyut because what we fear is she will, as I said, she's only suspected of being a Sota. We don't know that she's a Sota. She might be uh, exonerated. She might be found innocent. That's what we call Zakah. She might be Zakah. She might be found to be innocent. This was all wrong. The husband misunderstood and so forth. And as a result, she now marches out of, uh, out of the Mishkan, out of the Mikdash. And the Perheke those young Kohanim who saw her exposed, Yitgaruba, they're going to be chasing after her the rest of her life. That's what we fear. Over here by the Sikila, I mean, what's happening to this woman? She's being killed. You're nervous about the Hirhur? What's the Hirhur you're nervous about? She's going to be killed. What's that? She won't be around any longer. Maybe you'll tell me, Well, ultimately speaking, it's true she won't be around, but you already, or the people who are watching already got provoked, they got aroused, and as a result, they will come to to chase after other women. They got aroused sexually by seeing her exposed prior to being killed. They're not going to chase after others, says the Gemara. It's not the way it works. I mean, I'll, I, what do you want me to tell you? Amar Gemire, we have a tradition and yeser hara sholet elo bemishe inav ro'ot your yeser hara will only take a hold of you will only possess you with regards to something or someone that you see or have seen and as a result the exposure of her won't then lead is Rabbah's understanding to your arousal amongst others at the very least that's the hachamim's logic in this context so we resolve the contradiction hachamim I can't tell you whether you know in today's day and age that works the same way 
right? But that's the statement at the very least in terms of its strength, its potency to be aroused, to be provoked, to go after. It won't go, says Rabbah. Says Amar Rabbah. Rabbah responds to Rabbah. Rabbah with the hair, Rabbah with the mouth. He says, wait a second. So you resolved it. You didn't resolve it. All you did was explain the contradiction. Amar you explained the contradiction between Rabbi Yehuda. You explained why Rabbi Yehuda in our sugya permits for the woman to be naked, but by the sota does not. But what about the hachamim? Your resolution works in the opposite direction for the hachamim. Keep in mind, the hachamim are the ones who say that by being put to death, she's clothed. By being a sota, she's unclothed, she's naked. So you didn't answer that one. Ela, Marava, Rava says, I have a different resolution. I can answer it differently. First and foremost, it says, I'll accept your answer by Rabbi Huda. But I need to now, Shane means to answer. I need to now resolve the Hachamim. What about the Hachamim? It's a contradiction. It seems blatant contradiction. In the Hachamim, on the one hand, our sugya, they seem to be Hayish Lehirura. By Masechet Sota, they don't. That he cites a pasuk here from Yechezkel. The pasuk in Yechezkel says, Venivaseru. The women should be almost tortured and they therefore shouldn't follow in the ways of zima, of promiscuity. In other words, as we'll read in just a moment, the purpose over here is that women who watch, nothing to do to be, uh, excuse me, Hachamim's vision was never about the, the provocation to the men, the arousal of the men. That was never their fear. Their issue was, it might be, but the Gemara is going to suggest not so for Hachamim. If it was, then uh, you're right, you have a contradiction. Their only issue was the women who will watch, what sort of lesson will they take from this? As a result, Hacha, in this circumstance, by us, where she's being put to death, and Lechayisur Gadol Mizeh, the women watching this scene, they don't need her to be exposed. They don't need her to be naked in order to walk away and have a lesson, I shouldn't do her way. Why not? She's being put to death. One second. Maybe should do two to her. Let her A, be put to death. Let her B, be exposed. And by exposing her, you'll embarrass her. The women will walk away and say, I would never do anything like her. I don't want to be put to death. I don't want to be embarrassed publicly. That you're supposed to be borer mitayafa, which means say when you put someone to death, put them in the most honorable way to death. Of course, the question is, we can address separately, how you find that in that pasuk, it's a fascinating thing. We sing this pasuk, we teach it to our children, and yet the vision of the rabbis is, the Avdalere is not referring to me and you, it's rather referring to the person on death row, and only the person on death row, one second. So that being the case, says the Gemara, that's the derasha over here of the hachamim. The hachamim envision it as follows. They say, when you're dealing with the isha sota, expose her. Why do you expose her? So the women learn from this. When you're dealing with the woman who's being put to death, the women learn from it just from the fact she's being put to death. Says the let me just finish this thought. Says the Gemara, perhaps that statement of Rav Nachman, that when it comes to being put, putting an individual to death, you should treat them with the honorable uh, reality, treat them as honorably until the death. For him or for her, the most appropriate death. Maybe the Chachamim admit to it, and that's why they say the woman shouldn't be naked. But Rabbi Uda disagrees. Says the Gemara, 
both Rabbi Yehuda and the Chachamim agree to Rav Nachman. Wait a second, if that's the case, how come Rabbi Yehuda seems to be telling me it's okay for her to be naked? Why is it okay for her to be naked? She shouldn't be naked. Says the Gemara, we have two factors at play, says the Gemara. Number one, is she going to be exposed and embarrassed? That's what we call gufe. Uh, On the other hand, we have niha. We have the way in which she's going to be put to death. If she's not wearing clothing, it'll be a quicker death. If she's not wearing clothing, she'll be more embarrassed. Which one would the average person rather? Would they rather suffer less or would they rather be less exposed and embarrassed in that moment? That's the mahloket. Both of them, both Hachamim and Rabbi Uda, want this woman to have the easiest death, most honorable death. Says Rabbi Uda, you want to know what the most honorable death is? The quickest death. She's not going to feel it all that much. The first few stones that hit her and she's out. Say the Hachamim, not so. A person would rather be wearing their fine clothes and go out. It might take a little bit longer, but nobody sees them exposed. In turn, our Gemara's conclusion on this matter of whether Yahayish Lehurah or not is relevant to all. They both are interested and, uh, and, and inspired by Siniyut. Nonetheless, they have a Mahloket, as the Gemara described to us, about how that will play out, both in the case of Sota and in the case of Sekila. Baruch Amen